Hark, it's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedurals, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast looks at book number 36, Ice. To review the book, I'm joined by two very cool men. Mr. Morgan, the Ice Warrior Brown. Hello. Do you want to make the ice warrior noise? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Stephen, Mr. Frosty Royston. Hello. Have you got a small penguin with you full of, you know, <laughs> E number sauce? No, afraid not. Did you have a Mr. Frosty when you were little? Uh, no. I think the Mr. Frosty thing was one of the things that you used to look at longingly in the Argos yeah. catalogue, wasn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. And thought, under what circumstances can I possibly get my parents <laughs> to buy me that? And failed. But no, well, I, I didn't. I had one. Yeah. I had one when I was little, but probably too little to understand it, basically. Because And so all I remember is rediscovering it in the shed at some point. <laughs> so... <laughs> But there you go. Anyway, moving on from 80s toys, I'd just like to tell everyone my name is Paul Abbott and I operate most efficiently when supercooled by a complex series of ducts, <laughs> which would be very nice because it's actually a very warm day today while we're recording this. It is, so it's, lo- it's lovely, isn't it? Glorious. Perhaps ice will cool us down as we read through. So thanks to everyone who's listening, as always, and getting in touch via the social networks. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Gmail by using Hark87Podcast. And if you feel compelled to reward us for doing this, then the easiest thing is to just hit the rating button in your podcast app and give us five lovely stars. And if you're feeling flush with praise, then you can do a review as well. But anyway, we hope you're all doing well. And as always, it's lovely to have you along on the journey, especially if you're listening in Montenegro, as apparently someone is, which is very exciting. I don't know what the Montenegrin McBain market's like, but uh, welcome on board. So, yeah, there you go. See, talk about global reach. Indeed. Excellent. Yeah. Book 36, which means we're basically two thirds of the way through this. Oh, my Lord. So Sad, we'll have to read them again, won't we? Yes, <laughs> start over. Redux. Remastered editions. <laughs> and I'm glad to say that this is one that I haven't read before. Oof, so this is, this is a new one for me. Big, thick book as well. It is. Relatively speaking for the series. Right. So should we do a little bit of no- quick 1983 context stuff? Yep. Okay, I'll, I'll just run down what was happening in 1983. See, see if you can spot a theme of what I've selected to talk about. Mm-hmm. February the 23rd, there's an automatic shutdown failure at the Salem Nuclear Power Plant in New Jersey. April 22nd, a reactor shutdown due to failure of fuel rods occurs at Kursk Nuclear Power Plant. June the 30th, there's a total loss of coolant at the Embalse Nuclear Power Station in Argentina, rating a level 4 on the International Nuclear Event Scale. July the 1st, there's a technical failure causing a release of iodine-131 from Philipsburg Nuclear Power Plant in Germany. September 26, there's the Soviet nuclear false alarm incident, where a Soviet officer managed to avert nuclear war. And November 7th, there's the Able Archer exercise, misinterpreted by the Soviets as a nuclear first strike. So that's what was happening in 1983. Can you spot the theme? (laughs) Fairly chilled out few months there, really. Yeah, 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 very easygoing time all around, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's nice to know other generations were living oh. in a time of total confusion and fear. <laughs> and, 
I think that's the one constant throughout humanity. Yeah, there was obviously other stuff going on in 1983, but it was very telling as I was looking through how much of how often the word nuclear popped up mm. during that. Especially given that a couple of those ones were actually potential nuclear war scenarios, which were just misinterpretation of, of information, basically. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was fun. Crazy. Doesn't really impact on the 87th Precinct, but uh, maybe the following books will have some of the nuclear terror hanging over them. <laughs> but the book before this was from 1981, and now we're in 1983. So we've, the 87th Precinct's had a year off. So I'll, I'll catch you up on what Ed McBain, Evan Hunt, has been doing in the meantime. So in 1982, The McBain Brief comes out, the short story collection. 1982, Beauty and the Beast, which is one of the Matthew Hope novels, comes out. 1983, the Evan Hunter novel, Far From the Sea, comes out. I don't actually know anything about that at all. I haven't got that one. Then we also have Ice, obviously. And there's only one short story published in this period, which is a thing called Sweet Molly in Woman's Own, which I... It's credited to Evan Hunter, but I don't know what it is. The name like Sweet Molly, it could quite easily be an extract from Ice or something like that. And in terms of TV stuff, there is, in October 1983, a thing called See the Sun Abduction, which is a Japanese TV movie, again based on King's Ransom. Crikey. The amount of adaptations of King's Ransom over the years, especially in Japan, is is, is nuts. But it's like a one-off version I don't know anything else about the series. And in May of 1982, there's a TV movie in America on NBC called The Legend of Walks Far Woman, written by Evan Hunter, based on a book by a guy called Colin Stewart about a Native American woman, I think, who gets cast out of a tribe. And she's played by Raquel Welsh. (laughs) Who obviously McBain knew from Fuzz Mm. and... I believe that's referenced in the book we're looking at as well. So there you go. So that's what he was getting up to in those bits there. But there's more pre-information to to give out as well, because there's a change of publishers too at this point. Again, he seems to change publish every book. It's much smaller blocks after the sort of 60s of how many are published with one publisher at any time. It's pretty constant in the UK because it's still Hamish Hamilton and Pan in the UK and it will be for a few more years. But in America, it's now Arbor House. It's the first of five books that they put out in the 87 Precinct range. And then it's the first of 10 books published in paperback by Avon. But McBain had been with Arbor for other books a lot longer. So it's, it's all blah, 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 here, there, everywhere type stuff. Arbor was owned by Hearst Communications... Avon was already owned by Hearst and they reissued a lot of earlier McBain's in this as well. So it was a bit of a revival of some of his earlier books as the 80s went on. It was copyright registered on the 15th of March 1983 and Ice was published, I found out, on the 30th of March 1983. So we can get stuck into this really now. Lots of facts and figures for you there. And as always, once we've open the book we get to our dedication it's dedicated to elizabeth and john g fuller john g fuller being the name i think that has some research potential steve what did you find out well yes i did, I did have a, a little bit of a, a look into uh, john g fuller although uh, as soon as uh, i saw his name it reminded me of william g stewart another, <laughs> another famous g in the uh, the the middle name 
quiz master. So there's, there's, so there's three of them. Edward G. Robinson, William G. Stewart, and John G. Fuller. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think the G stood, stands for in this gentleman's name? Perhaps um, you know. Uh, I'd guess Gerald. No. Grant. Oh. He was, yes, he was, he was an author who, uh, a predominantly uh, non-fiction author, uh, who wrote various books about various quite interesting subject matter. Hmm. And his big breakthroughs came through with uh, a couple of books regarding uh, UFO sightings, oh. which you kind of take UFO kind of stories as a bit of a... You know, something that's been around for a long time, but um, the blurb yeah. on these, uh, this is 1966 as well, uh, referred to them being like the f- they were the first kind of, I'll use the words believable in uh, <laughs> imaginary speech marks here, <laughs> the first kind of serious books about the subject that were trying to seriously report Barney yeah. and Betty, as these two people were uh, named, uh, being abducted by aliens. In a book called The Interrupted Journey, which sounds like a a chapter from Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? It does. Uh, Or The Hobbit, something like that. Uh, Yeah, so he he, he wrote those. He he wrote one about a nuclear disaster uh, called um, uh, We Almost Lost Detroit, which was the name of a a Gil Scott Heron song, uh, which was about a partial meltdown again in 1966. He wrote a book about a psychic surgeon in Brazil, right? And about a a crash that he claimed was a, a, a flight four hundred one, which was crashed by supernatural powers. Uh, and I couldn't really find mm. any more about that because that just seems totally ridiculous, doesn't it? It seems like yeah. total work of a crank. <laughs> Uh, but then he, he did write a book which had very, very good reviews called Are the Kids All Right, which was about a uh, 1979 Cincinnati uh, Coliseum disaster at the Who, where um, various uh, um, issues led to a crush of um, fans and 11 people died, I think. Yeah. So, yes, he um, he wrote all these books about all these various different uh, strange things really and his wife was a researcher on one of his books on the uh, a former um, flight attendant oh right uh, so um, yeah what the link is to McBain I do not know because he would have been 70 in 1983 so that's I think it's probably that he would have been um, based up in Connecticut so he would have been I think from my very very brief research trying to pin a link down between them I think he was just one of the authors in that area that McBain lived so they would have been in each other's orbit alright fair enough the orbit of a UFO yeah (laughs) so um, but yeah these are the kids alright book it's kind of very good reviews as a like a critical examination of a a disaster and yet you know and he's I think his book about the um Nuclear uh, incidents well received as well, but then he also writes books about psychic surgeons and UFO <laughs> journeys. So who knows? Well, yes, I, I don't feel I like keep under, my eye open. Yeah, I don't feel like got under the uh, the skin of him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but it's certainly an interesting dedication. So there you go. Now we know. I will say this book was adapted as well as part of those NBC adaptations in the mid nineties. It was the second of them. 
came out on the 18th of February 1996. Screenplay by Larry Cohen again. Dale Midkiff as Steve Carella. Oh my God, it's awful. Mm. <laughs> oh, it's dreadful. I, again, it takes massive liberties with the plot, moving people around, introducing characters who aren't in the book, building up the role for Teddy, but not in a useful or good way for the character. And it's terribly directed, really, really badly directed. And at one point, a microphone appears in shot at the top of the screen and just stays there. And it's... it's how... What? This is NBC. Mm. But yeah, apparently there was a lot of issues around um, violence on telly at the time in, being debated, so... NBC were a bit being very cautious with anything that had violence in. So that affected apparently the productions with this. And so although Hunter didn't actually write the screenplay for it, you know, he, he felt that they were him and the producers felt that they weren't doing the best they could and they weren't. <laughs> so there you go. Watch that. If you really must. it. <laughs> <clears throat> well, we better get into the book then. I must say, like I say, it's first time I've, I've read this and it's it's nice to come to a new one after ages new you know what i mean new mm, yeah I take it you've both read this before uh, uh i have yeah i have so second time around for me what about you morgan this not your first time with the book either uh, this uh it was the very first one i ever read actually Ooh. oh excellent so it was, i was quite excited to uh, to go back to it read this um back in i think 2002 is that right yeah i reckon so excellent uh so yeah great to revisit it cool it's definitely got a very good reputation just generally and we'll get to some of the reviews at the end as well but i will say that from here on in a lot of the reviews you see on the back of mcbain books quote from a newsweek article saying it was one of the top 10 crime novels of all time or mystery novels of the 20th century or something mm -hmm. like that i can't find the actual article to see what it was up against mm -hmm. but it's got a heck of a reputation in in the in the canon of work as it were yeah it's stuck out in my head as being one that i some i remember more than others and this one definitely stuck out as one that i remember being uh, very good uh, yeah it, um yep delivered second time round, i would say mm -hmm. Excellent stuff. So the title is obviously a classic McBain reference to more than one thing. I think what's strange that's changed since this came out is that ice, in terms of drugs, which will feature in this book quite heavily, now means crystal meth, mm -hmm. which clearly wasn't around then, or certainly not perhaps in the way it became as an epidemic. So ice, in terms of the drugs featured in this book, it's not that's one way it's not really being used but obviously the word ice comes to mean drugs. So I was trying to count how many time, how many ways the word ice is used in the book, but it's just, you lose track because it's also used creatively, you know, poetically to describe things as it were. Mm. Lots though, doesn't it? It takes place over about eight days in, in a very, very cold February where it's snowing. And opening question really, is this the first 87th Precinct book where the case they're investigating has actually already happened before the book starts because uh, the first body in the book is discovered by midtown east yeah, yeah possibly yeah. I, yeah I thought it was a good it's a very good start it's kind of interesting uh way to um, yeah kick off so we open with the murder of a dancer from a essentially a broadway show and midtown east are investigating it and very quickly we also find 
that the, the gun used to kill her is the same one used in the shooting of a guy called Paco Lopez, which the 87th Precinct is investigating. So that's the one that's happened before the book starts, mm-hmm. which is intriguing to give the first body to a totally different precinct. And there's tons of world building again in this one, which are, well, 288 pages in my edition is, you know, it's a big, big old book. Yeah, 310 in mine. Oh, that means we've got all different editions. Oh, it's exciting for the uh, bonus episode. Yeah, there's all sorts going on here. Monaghan and Monroe turn up right at the start to talk to uh, the Midtown East people. Mm-hmm. And it rattles on from there. So also significantly, we get the return of Eileen Burke for the first time since, well, ages. Yeah. Since Fuzz, I think. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think she's in a good run of them now, isn't isn't she? I seem to remember. Yeah. yeah. And she does make a quip about, were you expecting Raquel Welsh, who of course played her in the film of Fuzz, when she pops up to the 87th Precinct office? So, how do we go through with this then? We've got the body of a dancer, we've got the body of a... Oh, no, we haven't got the body, we've got the investigation into the death of Paco Lopez. What I found very interesting with this, and I did have to go back and really concentrate on it, mm-hmm. is the there's two real threads weaving in and out of each other that they think are the same thing, but they're not. Yeah. And blimey, the plotting of this must have taken some doing. It's quite fiendish, isn't it? Yeah, there's uh, there's rather a lot going on, and it's quite a tangled web. Yeah. Yeah, because sometimes before the uh, we do these podcasts, we reread them and rattle through them at a fair old rate. This was one that you definitely needed to read all of in order to you know understand where um where matters are up to because it cuts around chops around mid chapter a hell of a lot doesn't it It does yeah which is slightly different and yeah the the amount of threads and plates spinning in this one is uh, incredible really yeah i had Um, to write down a timeline for this which i've sort of done briefly on some of the other ones but just to get the main plot down i had to write a timeline which actually takes you to August in the year before the story starts in order to actually get it going and takes you well outside of the precinct bounds as well, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Yeah, just generally, like the, obviously it's a, a long book, probably almost twice the length of some of the others, I would say. Yeah, certainly um, some of the earlier ones. Uh, but yeah, that, that's down to like plot complexity, I suppose, but there's a lot bigger cast in this, I would say. Um pretty much most of the main detectives are heavily involved throughout that's right yeah and the uh, you know we talked we talk about the 87th uh, bingo don't yeah. we this would be an absolute house <laughs> this if you if you couldn't score house <laughs> it's got absolutely everything in hasn't it and he, he, the proper full blown explanation of Corella's looks uh, Maya's name you, you name it yeah Hal Willis gets a good uh, part in this as well mm-hmm. Cotton Hall's white hair, even though he's not really in it, even that gets a... Yeah, Andy Parker, who's not in it, also gets mentioned a few times and explained. Uh, Yeah, so, yeah, it's really, really good from that perspective. And having reread it now, you know, we've been quizzed many times, haven't we, about, like, which would be a great one to, if you're going to start somewhere but not in the middle. Well, you could do a hell of a lot worse than this one, really, because... It gives you a, a a good 
explanation of all the main characters and the city and the squad and procedure and essentially what these books are all about, I would say. Quite, yeah, it gives you a, a good feel for the world, but also kind of there's lots of throwbacks to earlier books, which give you a sense that there's lots of really interesting stuff that's already happened that you're going to want to go back and check out as well. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Yeah. It was, I, I, as I say, it was my first one. And it was a great introduction to the series, definitely. Yeah, it does do a lot of teasing back to the old books. I mean, even stuff that you wouldn't know. So there's some, I think if you came to this new, you'd definitely know that when Teddy Carella goes to get another tattoo, that's that's clearly linking back to something. Mm. So you, even without knowing the series, you'd think, oh, well, perhaps that's been something before. But there's even references back to people like the, like Mama Lutz, who was one of the, the madams in one of the brothels and things like that, who's featured before. Then there's all the cling backstory, which is clearly, you know, lady, lady, I did it and Sadie and, and all those things. And there's even a callback to the Maya Maya book. Yes. Which, which I still haven't read. I've still got it on my shelves to read. So, so yeah, there's tons. I've got my list of, of police characters in this, which I always write when I'm doing my little dossier before we do these things. And you've got, quite a lot from midtown east you've got a few from the chinatown precinct you've got someone from the fifth precinct you've got loads of homicide detectives in this one i'm gonna say some some new homicide cops aren't there yeah yeah there's a there's a trio of them isn't there the holy trinity of, of <laughs> hardigan hanrahan and mandelbaum yeah. <laughs> you come up with these names yeah yeah no that's, that's good and there's some good criminal the crime's quite, um, well, quite interesting and quite yeah. involved as well. But it's not; it's neither ridiculous nor mundane. It's just a kind of a city crime that involves money and loyalty and love, I suppose. And opportunism. And, yeah, and then the, the the spin-off involving the criminal element, which are quite cult, two fairly colourful characters, kind of echoes that as well, which is quite nice and their loyalty to one another yeah well i found that very intriguing so you're referring there to two of our main uh, antagonists and that's brother anthony and emma the fat lady forbes who are a, a couple yeah. of criminals who are in a couple as well they, yeah they're two oddballs aren't they quite eccentric even for the city, they're weird. Yeah, yeah I love yeah, them as characters. Kind of. They're kind of they're, they're so over the top, aren't they? They're kind of like the uh, the characters who turn up as criminals in sort of the uh, Chester Hines uh, novels. I was just I was just going to say that that is exactly what it reminded me of. Them, you could imagine them pottering around Harlem, <laughs> trying to evade uh, Coffinhead and Gravedigger Jones, couldn't you? But yeah. uh, but insisting on wearing a monk's habit, therefore standing yeah, what, standing out everywhere you go. Yeah, I love. What does he say? He, he's got this little saying. He says, "Dominus Vobiscum." Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, Dominus Vobiscum. He's got no idea what it means. Yeah, except some of the bits of Latin that go along. And then the, uh, the yeah, and then doesn't a doorman say some Latin to him? And he thinks, "Oh, that sounds really yeah, good." Right. Yeah, he gets the conspiratuto from the from the doorman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so yeah you kind of like those uh, like presented as you know kind of like fairly you know morally dubious of course and criminal you know poor characters and yet they they have all this loyalty to one another that is totally lacking in 
the seemingly superior characters of the of the victim and her circle. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. a very interesting point. That the, the the again the high and low of it. Yeah, so he kind of like turns their little stories totally around, really, and you left at the very end. You left feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that ending um, <laughs> eventually. <laughs> what I quite like here is the is the thread about the theatre. So obviously a dancer's been killed. So they're going to investigate the theatre, and there's all sorts of characters you'd meet in a theatre, and there's lots of them. Which is one of the problems for the the cops in the book is there's so many people that they need to talk to who might have seen this something or know about where this where the first victim Sally Anderson was, and. They do a lot of investigating and meet all sorts of all sorts of folks, but there's one guy, Alan Carter, the producer, who's very suspicious, and they have to keep chasing him down, and they think he's got something to do with it. They've met the victim's boyfriend very early on, who's just a medical student, and you've just got so many, you've got so many characters in this book. It's it's quite a juggling act. And then you've got Eileen Burke's various subplots with the holdups in the laundrettes. Yeah. Which is which is an exceptional little bit of storytelling where she goes out with Willis to try and catch the dirty panties bandit. <laughs> he gets a few different names, doesn't he? This uh, nefarious individual uh, over the course of it. He gathers a few different nicknames, which are all fairly hilarious. I mean, it's like something out of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It feels like the comedy sequence, except for the fact that it basically triggers some weird... And this is the one thing I did find quite hard to deal with, this sort of strange psychological discussion of of rape fantasies. Yeah, that's which, very uncomfortable, isn't it? It definitely is, and I'm obviously no psychologist, and I... I couldn't say either way, but it is. it's very hard to bring in a significant female character and then have her mainly just discuss rape fantasies but then she's in a situation where she has to pretend to be a rape fantasy for a lot of people because she's a decoy and so it's i mean it's not something that's going to go away soon with that character either i don't think Mm. but it's nice to have a a more significant female character in the book again yes absolutely yeah do some of the good work he's done by reintroducing eileen burke by having that be her main topic of conversation yeah but I do like, like that she's quite forthright about things. You know, she sees what she wants and she makes a point of going and getting it. And that, in this case, is a very, very depressed Bert Kling. Yeah, he's not quite as uh, destructive with his glumness as he was after um, Claire Town's end, is he? He's no. just... He's, just, he's just, just shutting down, isn't he, essentially? Yeah, he's just, he's just not doing anything. Yeah. And... I think, yeah, with that, it's it's interesting to see a character, the you know, the the young Bright Hope becoming because he's no now no longer the youngest man on the squad. He couldn't keep that uh, that myth up any longer in the storytelling, even with the fake aging that he does to the characters. But he's just, yeah, he is very broken. Yes, spending a lot of time studying his ceiling and thinking about his gun. Yeah. Tough stuff. In the adaptation of this, they make a point of having him have to go and see Augusta Blair again, just to oh. sort of rub it in. It's like, what's no point in that? It just just serves no purpose. Other than... anyway, I'm not going back onto that. I'll just get angry again. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's quite hard to talk about this in a linear fashion, given how much is weaving in and out of it. 
So, yeah, I'll just mention some of the things I discovered that are real-world references in there. You can tell me if you spotted any. One was a thing called the Molly Maguires. Had you ever heard about the Molly Maguires? No. It uh, rang a bell, definitely, but I think for the, in the, the same way that in the book they say, oh, yeah, she chose the name Molly Maguire because it would ring a bell, and it, it, it does, but I didn't really know why. It's a secret Irish society, which obviously would have a big presence in any city that had a large Irish immigrant influx at any point. But it also had a very big presence in Liverpool, apparently. So it was a actual secret Irish society. And there used to be a street in Liverpool called Alexander Pope Street. I think it's gone now, somewhere in town. And there was a pub on that, which was a meeting place for the Molly Maguires. I started researching this and then I had to stop because I just thought if I keep looking at this, try to find information, I'll never get any further in the book. They do compare the city to um, being like Moscow and Gorky Park, <laughs> which is gives you an impression of some bleakness. Definitely. And obviously, because it is a um, there's a theatre aspect to this. Yeah. There's a few references to musicals, but obviously we had that one about Caper in the last book, yeah. the McBain musical. But there's a reference to Annie, a musical that I've been in, oh, in indeed. fact. And there's a reference to a play called Death Trap. Yes. Do you know anything about it? I had a, a, a little look because I thought that rings a vague bell. And it's uh, Ira, Ira Levin, is that right? Yeah. From yeah. Rosemary's yeah, Baby yeah. And, um, and what have you, the Boys from Brazil fame. Sounds interesting. Yeah. I believe there's a film version too with Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure I've, I've seen that film, yeah. That's quite a cast. But, um, extremely successful on Broadway, I believe. Longest running comedy thriller on Broadway. So there's a sort of uh, success on Broadway that always evaded Evan <laughs> Hunter. Yeah, there's all sorts. There's all sorts of real world references in here. Like there's, there's references to John Belushi's death yes. as well in the, a Belushi cocktail or whatever it was yeah, called. People, the drugs. Yeah. I was wondering... If you had any thoughts on whether the actual music, musical that mainly features in the book was a reference to a real world one, um, Fatback, because I, I, I meant to try and look into it and then totally failed. No, I didn't explore that too far. It's, I mean, the name Fatback is a, is a terrible <laughs> name for a musical. It's a smash hit, though. It may well be, but yeah. Yeah, definitely a smash hit. Everyone loves a Fatback. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I think it's interesting that he, he gets Corella to go and see it and Corella refuses the offer of free tickets, you know, because he's a good cop and he doesn't take things for free. <laughs> refuses the offer of, of free tickets and then discovers that they're really, really expensive but feels obliged because he's taking Teddy to see it. Um, yeah, there's a few other little bits. There's another statue of someone who's a statue of General Ronald King and I think that is another friend of Hunter's but I couldn't find out much that about him. Sense. There's a reference to... Thing, a film called Devil in the Flesh from 1947, La Diable du Corps. Oh, yeah. There's the actress Lola Falana, who is Artie Brown's TV crush. And another classic use of one of Hunter's... One of Hunter's dates of birth? Of Hunter's date of birth, which is used as an example of a safe combination in the sequence where they try to open the safe of someone we haven't even mentioned who is a jeweller who they discover who's been shot with the same gun that killed yeah. the other two people. Yeah, it's a good way into the uh, proceedings, isn't it? A lot of dead-end investigations gone on at that point. Yeah. Um, and then this guy's been shot underneath his, 
And he's in his garage by his house, isn't he? Yeah, and he's got a coat on, which has got lots of little pockets with diamonds inside them, which, which I presume was a thing, a way people transported these <laughs> these things, but I don't know whether he's supposed to be concealing them or what. But that's quite interesting because it does lead to a very classic bit of paper trail investigation, which is given to Arthur Brown, who has to sit and go through all the movements of this jeweller to try and figure out why he was taking all these trips abroad, which reminded me quite a lot of the, the book Bread, yes, which had a similar thing with things being imported. So that was a nice sort of conceptual tie back to that sort of activity in the police, police squad. Police squad? <laughs> Like I say, it's, I find it's very hard to actually process in a linear fashion because I've not even talked about the fact that very early on Dick Gennaro's brought a pregnant prostitute into the squad room who then gives birth. <laughs> yeah, that's like right at the beginning, isn't it? There's so much going on in this, this book. It's impossible to explain it all, really. Because yeah, it, yeah. it do, really does like dart from one thing to another throughout... Yeah, I feel like I'm missing one of the aspects of the plot, but I, I, I really can't think what it would be. Because there is all this ancillary stuff. Even when they go to see Sam Grossman in the lab, Grossman's got his own thing where a whole story that we don't hear about, which is his own version of the Valentine's Day massacre has happened, where a load of people dressed as cops have killed people. I want to know more about that. Quite, yeah. There's um, yeah, there's so much going on. You, you only get little glimpses of it. It's, uh, it's fascinating, isn't it, really? And they keep moaning about the, the fact that well, it's good coincidence because it's Bank Holiday Monday here in, in the UK while we're recording this anyway. And in the book, the Monday is President's Day holiday. And all the characters are moaning all the time about this holiday, about what is it? It's it's just this made, bizarre made-up holiday. So I asked on Twitter if any of our followers could explain why anyone would be moaning about having a day off. Because <laughs> as far as I could tell, President's Day, by the mid-1980s, it sort of had a bit of a push from advertisers as, as holidays often do to try and get you to buy certain things at certain time. But our Twitter follower, Kevin Mahoney's told me that it used to be two holidays. It'd be like Washington and Lincoln's birthdays that they sort of combined into one day. So essentially you have a net loss of one holiday. Oh. <laughs> My voice keeps breaking. Excuse me. A net loss of one holiday. So if you're a government employee, that's, that's not great. So, and apparently the big activities to do on President's Day are go and buy new linen or a car. Oh, what a great tradition. <laughs> so that's a, a, a strange thing that is on the mind of these government employees, the police in, in this book as well. We've got a guy called Timothy Moore anyway, who they keep investigating, who is the, the, the boyfriend of the f- first victim that we meet in the book, Sally Anderson. And long story short and it is a long story it turns out that he's got lots of drugs and he's been supplying drugs in the city and that's who brother anthony and the fat lady are trying to essentially get to that's the strange thing with this book is they're trying to get to him the police are trying to get to their case and all these things have eventually some of these threads drop away and you're left with people trying to get to the same place without knowing it which is quite a clever way of doing it. Yeah, and they're there exactly the same time, aren't they? Come the the, the very end yeah. of the book for the uh, the big climax. Probably don't want to give this one away because it's quite. Well, yeah, if we can avoid it. You know, it's not. Yeah, yeah, it's not. It's not obvious what the the answer is. It, it does keep you uh, engaged uh, throughout. 
Yeah, and the plot that sort of withers on the vine eventually is is the one about the theatre and the producer, Alan Carter, who's been taking part in what is known as ICE, which, I, I mean, I don't know if that's a term. I assume it is. Certainly we know Ed McBain was obsessed with the theatre anyway. And don't really know about that one, but yeah, theatrical ICE being the, let's try and get this clear, the selling on of the seats that are given away as as comps to people in the cast and the crew and things like that. Is that right? Yeah, uh, as, as far as I can gather, yeah. So they have complimentary seats, but which, which are then sort of basically sold on at inflated prices, um, I think, yeah. it, basically. So the box office doesn't lose any money because they, they get the seats at cost, but they then sell them on for a lot, which then gets taken they, without any tax yeah yeah they're just yeah it's just a it's just a means of evading tax isn't it yeah uh, so you yeah you you intentionally make a load of spare t- you know seats available for for your guests as it were but which everyone knows that nobody has in, any intention of taking up and then get resold mm-hmm. yeah uh, but of course, they haven't got any real evidence to charge him for that, so that just he essentially gets away with it. Yep. Yep. So, so we've got theatrical ice. We've got diamonds ice. We've got people yeah. being iced. We certainly have. Icy weather. Icy weather. Icy drugs. I, I, icy yeah. drugs. And uh, icy jewels and icy tax fraud schemes. Yeah. Anymore? Yeah. Icy well, in an ice cream train. Oh, yeah. Actual ice. Yeah, ice in ice. Ice squared. Ice cubed, <laughs> in fact. Why didn't I think of saying that first? Ice squared. What an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, we have a lot more bodies, or a few more bodies in this. We have all sorts going on, and it does come to basically an ending which relies on a particular judge in the city, this character called Walking Wilbur Harris, who is a notorious judge who would let people off in the book. And of course, it does turn out that there's a real world equivalent. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm very thankful to our Twitter follower, Matthew Sullivan, for pointing me in the direction of this. So let me find my little, little notes about it. So Walking Wilbur Harris is a reference to a judge who was known as Turn em Loose, Bruce. <laughs> guy, called, guy called Bruce M. M. Wright. Which is it's a good snappy name there. It is. Made up by the Police Benevolent Association, apparently. And he was called that because he was he would set very low or no bail in many of the cases that he dealt with in the criminal courts in New York, and particularly in the 70s and, and early 80s. So they used to shuffle him around to different courts to try and get him to stop this. His reasoning being that very often the bail that was being set was punitive, so people who couldn't afford the bail were being punished more than they should have been, which in some respects is absolutely right. But it meant that very often, you know, people who'd been accused of quite violent crimes were getting on out on bail for like $50 or out on their own recognizance. Hmm. So he'd got a bit of a reputation, and that's clearly who walking Wilbur Harris is supposed to be. Except in this case... He sets the bail for someone at $100,000 and unfortunately it's a rich person who can just go, yeah. Mm. <laughs> so the police don't get their man in this book. No, We've warned people about spoilers anyway. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, so 
well, turn off now if you don't want to know who did it. <laughs> yeah, turn off uh, 30 minutes ago if you don't want to know, know who did it. But, well, we don't even have to say who did it, but the, the person who did no. do it doesn't get away with it. No, the police don't catch up with them, but somebody else does. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, blimey. It's, uh, it's, it's quite the ending to the book. Hmm. It is. Quite a grisly end, this particular chap has. One thing I was going to mention is the radios. You oh, know, the, yeah. the person uh, who is accused here seemingly has a very, very good alibi. Yeah. Um, Almost fact- Columbo-esque, that sort <laughs> well, of alibi. Well, oh, how did you know what I was going to say? Yeah, I was saying this was like a Columbo alibi because it involves like gadgetry to a certain extent. Well, not that a portable radio is anything particularly new in 1983, I don't suppose, but... Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a bit Columbo-like. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, I can definitely see that being uh, yeah being used by the sort of baddie in a Columbo episode. A sort of clever combination of phone call timings and yeah. using a portable radio and things like that to, to give the the other person the impression that this guy's in exactly the same place where he's actually in a call box or mm. what have you. Yeah. Okay, well, we better sum up and then uh, I'll tell you about some of the contemporary contemporary reviews. Sound like Moira Rose from Schitt's Creek then. Contemporary. Okay, so shall I go first? You know, it was my first time with this book. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Okay. As a first time read, it was quite a shock. It's a longer book. As we said, it's got lots and lots of characters. It's got several plots which are quite hard to track on first read. But then even just during the time when I was putting together the notes for this, it's like, oh yeah, okay, it started to make more sense. So this is a great one to come back to after the first read. But it wasn't bad on the first read at all. I don't know whether I would say it's the best if I was going to be asked to put forward a McBain for the top 10 crime novels of all time. I don't know whether I would put this one in out of the ones we've done anyway. But I think it's certainly, for me, it's at least an 82 Police Shields type thing. So that is what I am going to give it. And I will pass over to Morgan. Okay. Well, as I've said, this was the first one that I ever read uh, some 18 years ago. And I've been all the way through while I've been doing these. I've been looking forward to this coming back up uh, so I could give it another go. Um, And, yeah, I was just delighted to read it again. I think it's, it's pretty magnificent. It's got... Um, sort of all of the things that I look for from an 87th Precinct uh, novel in generous amounts. And yeah, I just, I I think it's, it's kind of very much um, in the top tier of, of um, the series really for me. Uh, Yeah. I I definitely agree with your comments about being a bit uncomfortable about um, just the, the the whole thing with uh, Eileen Burke's, great fantasy i mean that that's just grim and i could have definitely without that so i'm deducting some points for that but i'm going to go in with a very strong 92 police shields because i don't think it's going to get much better than this oh excellent okay so steve-o yeah there's there's a certain yeah it's like a brucey bonus (laughs) you know it's got it's got a rich it's got a richness and depth that its sheer length allows it to dwell on a lot of things, yeah. doesn't it? I think. 
And yeah, you know, there are elements that aren't perfect. And, you know, the, the, the crime itself, I suppose, if you were analysing that, it's no wacky deaf man plot, is it, that kind of <laughs> no. leaves you kind of... Uh, mouth open wide as to what the hell's going on. It's a relatively straightforward crime, but um, I do like uh, Brother Anthony and uh, Emma Forbes. I thought they were very good, memorable characters. And yeah, oh, I think I think this is like right at the absolute top of these. And when you kind of th- when when we before we all started this, there was like two or three that stuck in my head as like, well, they're they're you know, right up there at the top. This was, this was definitely one. So whether we get to one, which I will ever score at 100, I, I do not know. But I, I think I'm going to go 96 on this. I, I, think, this is, me. I think this is right. I feel like I should have gone up a bit higher too now. Right, well, <laughs> right at the very top, this, I, I would say. Well, with my score of 82, which, you know, I still think is is fair from from my perspective. That gives us a yeah. total of ninety police shields, so definitely okay. upper echelons. I think we definitely, when we get to the end of this, we're going to have to have a look at our top and bottom of of the rate of the ratings that we've done and see whether we think that actually compared to each other, they they deserve the place they are because yeah. this this could move up, it could move down, but yeah, ninety police shields. Yeah, we can. We could maybe have a final reckoning at the very end. Final countdown. So I'll let, I'll tell you a little bit about how it was received at the time. Obviously, I mentioned about the Newsweek thing. The Kirkus described it as longer but lesser. It lacked the vivid plotting of the 87th Precinct at its recent best, and they say that's long time no see, or even its second best, Heat. So they weren't that keen. So they're preferring the... Slightly wackier, plottier ones, aren't they? Maybe. Yeah, clearly. In his column for the New York Times, Jonathan Coleman wrote, There are some things in the book that are too obvious, but what the novel occasionally lacks in mystery is more than compensated for by its razor-sharp dialogue and its exciting climax, as well as the many things one learns about the drug trade. (laughs) So education and uh, entertainment. Marilyn Stasio, or Stasio, sorry, Marilyn, in the Philadelphia Inquiry says, <laughs> I like this phrase, McBain has, been a, has always been a very grown-up writer. No hyperkinetic action or throw-up-in-your-hat violence for, for him. Just a very good plot and very solid characters for a very pleasurable read. Throw-up-in-your-hat violence. I want more books that make me throw up into hats. <laughs> I feel like there's definitely been the odd bit of throw-up-in-your-hat violence. I'm sure... Um... Calypso yeah. has a little bit of. I did throw up in my hat a little. I yeah. Uh, when I, reading, I that. threw up into a small hat whilst watching watching that reading yeah. that. Washington Post. Gene White says, "If we are to believe the book jacket hype, Ed McBain has broken new ground in Ice. His latest eight seven precinct novel is touted as quote more far reaching." as it transcends the genre of crime fiction as Le Carre's "The Spy Who Came In from the Cold" did the novel of espionage. But she says the only way that ice is more far-reaching is in length, and more McBain is not necessarily better McBain. But then goes on to say it's really good. <laughs> Fair enough. She says it, it doesn't need to be praised uh, like as as a transcendent, you know, a, a transcendent experience because mm. it's good enough anyway without comparing it to some sort of you know spiritual experience. So a little bit of a mixed bag there, but certainly no 
no massively dissenting voices, really. Fair enough, I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, th- I think he, you know, you know, it's interesting that this is as long as it is, really, because it does stick out in the in the canon, really. But he, you know, he invests the the extra length, not in necessarily some wacky plot, but just extra ability to delve deeper into the city i felt i don't know yeah i think you're absolutely right well we'll see how that continues in the next book in the series which is in 1984 so he's, he's had his year off he's but he's so he's back on one a year from here on in for a little while anyway and the next book is book number 37 and it is lightning oh. i always think of heat ice and lightning as a sort of power trio <laughs> which is clearly why they were pulled together for the adaptations in the 90s but i even have a feeling that while i'd read heat and lightning i might have got them all pretty much at the same time and just not got round to ice for some reason anyway that's what it'll be it'll be lightning so until well we're going to do our bonus episode but until then i'm going to say goodbye and pass you over to steve-o goodbye and morgan well <laughs>